We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Hi everyone, today Adam and I are joined by journalist Sander Hicks. Sander is the author of two books on 9-11, The Big Wedding and Slingshot to the Juggernaut. And in these, he brings out a lot of unique aspects which we really hadn't encountered anyone else talking about. And this includes the highly suspicious death of a whistleblower, Dr. David Graham, who reported two of the hijackers to the FBI prior to 9-11 happening. Another whistleblower named Richard Taus, who has information on the FBI's Carson Dunbar, a key figure in the 1993 Trade Center bombing, as well as Mohammed Atta and his CIA-connected friends down in Florida. We also talk about the direction of the 9-11 Truth Movement in general, and that's where we'll jump in. But I applaud what you're doing because it seems like you're interested more in deep state machinations and a, a, a corruption that's, that's, uh, uh, that's going, that whether or not you're a 9-11 truth aficionado, there's like, there's a corruption there that, that exists in the, in the, the U.S. capitalist imperialist state that uh, is worth exposing. Yeah, I think that's the important thing. I think 9-11 is a portal through through which you can come to understand the wider world you know yeah maybe going back a hundred years in history and certainly up to the day so in, in looking at what's going on um in the straits of Hormuz right now with the the oil tankers that are getting hit you can i was going to point that out to, yeah, that, 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 yeah to... it's never been more relevant actually i was thinking that i should maybe back away from some of the 9-11 truth stuff that i've done because i'm in the dsa now and it's it's not um I don't know. I'm, I hate to cave the peer pressure because I never have in all of my life. But at age 48, I'm trying to be more of a good partisan activist for affordable housing. And I'm trying to uh, trying to branch out a little bit and not be just siloed in one issue. But then then you can just see a clear uh, use of, of, of uh, uh, flimsy fabricated evidence, Pompeo saying, we have evidence it was the Iranians who attacked the uh, Japanese oil tankers, but we can't tell you. You know, it, it's it's uh, it's like the time that Christopher Hitchens was arrested in in, in an iron iron curtain country, and they said uh, he kept on saying, "I won't say it's Kafka esque," but uh, until finally they said, uh, "We we do know the reason you were arrested, but we can't tell you." So that's that's the moment he said it's certainly Kafka esque. Yeah, I mean, we, we were just talking about the, the Iranian situation there a moment ago, and I do take some heart in that 
what I'm seeing, and it might be that I exist in my little bubble, but I'm seeing a lot of people going, oh yeah, pull the other one, you know, which I don't think was around 20 years ago. And I do think whatever, even if it's been a rough ride with things like 9-11 and a lot of, um, say, a wide spectrum of belief it's generated from the kind of conspiracy paranoia to the more sane and understandable. Yes, and these things are measurable. You could actually look at the use of false flag as a military term that has gained mainstream acceptance. And this is not just a theory or speculation. There's actually, you could measure it uh, that's quantifiable. You could say how many times in the media has the term false flag been used or does the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, uh, you know, wh- at what point was that term used? Because it, that, if you just use that term, that, that you, you've reached a level of, you know, inherent skepticism and inherent historicity of Gulf of Tonkin, Battleship Maine, uh, the Kuwaiti incubator scandal, and all of these provocations, you know, that were clearly fabricated for the, the cause of imperialism. Yeah, and I think that's got to be objectively a good thing, right? Even if there are people who, who say the, the towers were holograms and no one died on 9-11, and I see their posts on Facebook, even if you've got that going on, uh, it's a very mixed bag. That people are more aware of false flags, that the term is used more, that has to be objectively a good thing, right? It is, it is, yeah. And that, um, uh, and so yeah, we, I guess, you and I are very similar because I think we're very analytical and it's it's um, it's easy to judge, you know. But it's my the, my Zen training teaches me to like try to take take a step back from that judging mind, you know. It's it's not good or bad, you know. And so there's something really, you know. Sure, the 9/11 Truth Movement is messy, and sure people get distracted and they they bark up the wrong tree, or what we think is the wrong tree. But I'll tell you this, you know, like 10 or 15 years ago, I thought controlled demolition was the wrong tree to bark up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I took a swipe at it in the big wedding once or twice. But now I think Richard Gage and AE 9-11 Truth have more or less the right thesis that, that uh, two planes cannot be the sole cause of the takedown of three towers. You know, building seven is not explained. And so therefore... Um, you know, and then looking at the physical evidence, et cetera, the way that the buildings came down, um, it seems that that is a, a strong way to get into other geopolitical issues around 9-11. With my question for you would be, with, do you think that's the obvious uh, entry into 9-11? Because I, I, I myself, no. I think, what, what would be the obvious entry? I actually... This is something I'm really concerned about. And when I ran for Congress, uh, it's almost like a, a poll. You know, it's almost like I, I figured out the way to approach a mainstream progressive Democrat who is not in favor of 9-11 truth. If you simply say, yeah, but don't you think there's something suspicious about the Saudi financial connection? 15 of 19 uh, hijackers, were, uh, hijackers were Saudi. And what about that Michael Moore stuff in his film about the Saudis being flown out? Isn't the fact that the Saudis were flown out that day really suspicious? So even if somebody's really anti 9-11 truth, uh, you can get them to kind of, it's your foot in the door if you mention the Saudi financial connection, especially in the wake of all these breakthroughs in the 28 pages. Right. But my, I, I also, I, I think another problem is that uh, there's a seemingly, in my opinion, from what I've experienced online, 
there's a, there's a huge, there's a decent percentage of people within the truth movement who are uh, seemingly uh, anti uh, or anti-Semitic almost to a point. Is, oh, that, yeah. is that something that worries you, by the way? Yeah, it does. It does worry me. I mean, this is where my membership and lifelong commitment to liberation and uh, being somebody who's trying to stand up for the rights of all oppressed peoples, uh, you know, gets offended. Like um, I've personally confronted Christopher Bolin about some stuff that was in the first draft of his book. It's not there now, but he was, um, uh, you know, his book has some good stuff in it, but he, he shoots himself in the, in the foot by saying stuff like, oh, and the Jews control all the media and they control all the pornography, you know? So that's like, You've, you've, you've prevented yourself from saying anything intelligent about Israel and Perfect. geopolitics if you indulge in the same old anti-Semitic, uh, you know, Jew-hating conspiracy theories. And uh, um, it's, a, it's a problem the Iranians have, too. You know, I've been to these conferences, um, and they've also had dalliances at these conferences with some... Um, Holocaust deniers, and so it, it kind of taints the, the, the entire conference. So, uh, um, yeah, so that, that is something. Uh, however, I'll say this too. Um, uh, Israel was up to its neck, uh, deep, deep, deeply connected to the 9 11 event. Sure. You know, the, the, the five. And this is something that you're going to hear more about in the next couple of years from the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry. So it's not like I'm out on a, a limb. I'm not alone. It's not just me and Christopher Bolin, thank God, who are saying this. It, it's uh, the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry. I, I know personally is very interested in helping to expose in a court of law, the five dancing Israelis who celebrated the attacks with cigarette lighters and high fives. And then were later, arrested by East Rutherford police, and then were later um, detained by the FBI. It became a counterintelligence operation. There's a document you guys, since you guys like to read and dig deep, there's a document called the Shea Memo. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I posted it on my Facebook page, actually. Oh, good. And then maybe I already know. Maybe, yeah, okay, yeah, good. Adam's the kind of serious researcher. Adam's the brains of the operation, really. I, I right. turn up and ask no, questions, right. you know. <laughs> I can't believe I... I I can't believe I never even heard about it until just last year uh, or a year and a half ago, but um, on the road in Dallas, uh, um, one of the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry people turned me on to it. So, th so for your, for those listeners of yours who d might not know the Shea memo is worth looking at online. It was a, a document written by an international attorney who was so concerned about the Israeli connection to 9-11 that he, uh, took it upon himself to write and uh, write and send out to, to every single member of Congress a copy of this memo. And there was going to be an article about it, I think, at one point for um, salon.com. And then it got killed at the last minute. So Counterpunch did something. So there is something on, online for Counterpunch. Um, and it's, it's worth looking into because it, it carefully and legally dissects the Israeli connections to 9-11 and there was a DEA infiltration by Israeli intelligence in June of 2001 that I had no uh, idea about. It reminds me uh, actually of uh, the Richard Taus stuff because Richard Taus also was interested in, in DEA corruption if you've, re if you've been reading up on Taus so I'm sure we'll talk about it later in the show but because um, Taus left the New York FBI and then 
uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about Brad Ayers. Sorry, I'm, I'm confusing my FBI whistleblowers. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, uh, so back to the main thread. So the Shea memo exposes the Israeli connection. So every time Trump talks about uh, Palestinians celebrating the attacks, you, you, people, intelligent people should say, no, there actually is a media trail and a uh, police arrest record of uh, Mossad agents. Um, and this is what's great about the Shea memo is that this guy has had some sort of access to some kind of inter, uh, some kind of uh, national intelligence database, and he was able to say uh, that it was verified that at least two of those five dancing Israelis were actual agents of Mossad. Yes, that was the brothers Paul and Sivan Kurzberg. Right, the Kurtzberg brothers, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and they were later on Israeli television, and they said that they were there to document the event, so they they indicated foreknowledge. Um, so it's rare to talk to two guys who have actually read both of my books. So I appreciate that. You can also see the evolution of, of my strategy. At first in 2005, I was thinking that the best way to expose the obvious lies about 9-11 was just to be to talk to the whistleblowers who were trying to stop it from happening. Look at the foreknowledge, right? So Delmar Vreeland, um, you know, who had uh, some ostensible ties to Navy intelligence and Randy Glass, um, who was a FBI whistleblower, Joint, Joint Terrorism Task Force, Operation Diamondback, uh, and people like that. Uh, uh, Richard Taus to a certain extent too, because Richard Taus was in Clinton Correctional Facility and was actually interviewed by FBI right after 9-11 because one of the people he was in prison with uh, knew Muhammad Atta personally. Do you know that? Yeah, it's in, well, it's in your book, it's in the second Oh, okay. <laughs> I forget the fellow's name, but uh, yeah, I do recall that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, there's a, there's a, in fact, there's that memo that Richard Taus wrote, and I, I put it in, in toto as an appendix in the book, so that's right, yeah, yeah. So that, that was interesting. Um, and then, of course, uh, six years later, 2011, I had my own kind of... Uh, a deeper sense of revelations about 9-11 with uh, confronting the FBI about the, the murder of Dr. David Graham. And that really kind of, it helped me take the gloves off, you know, like scales fell from my eyes and I was able to see 9-11 in a deeper way. And instead of saying, well, maybe the Bush administration let it happen. I kind of saw that it was the U.S. military industrial complex, the intelligence complex that didn't just let it happen, but, but caused it to happen. They were shepherding Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Minar, right? These are the guys that are mentioned many times in the 28 pages. Joe Trento says that they were agents of Saudi intelligence in his book on safe at any altitude. And he's an interesting guy with all kinds of connections. He did, you know, he interviewed James Jesus Angleton on his deathbed and has uh, a, a unique perspective on the CIA. And uh, so, so Trento's book is backed up by people like Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, who said that he was also aware of Muhammad Atta and Nawaz al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar in early 2001 with Able Danger. And then somehow top brass at the Pentagon put the kibosh on Able Danger. So those names keep on coming up. Nawaz al-Hazmi, Khalid al-Midar. You know, who lived with an FBI informant before 9-11? Nawaz al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar, right? So who was getting money from Princess Haifa, right? Like all this wire transfers from Prince Bandar and Princess Haifa of the Saudi royal family. It was Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar. And so 
the reason that the scales fell from my eyes is because somebody, after I published a piece on Alternet uh, about some of this stuff, somebody sent me this unpublished manuscript by, again, another whistleblower, Dr. David Graham, who was effectively murdered by the FBI in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, right around 2004, 2005. He just wouldn't shut up and wouldn't, um, he felt he had kind of almost like a Christian mission like his this was the cross that he wanted to bear and to carry and to, to try to save the country from the next 9-11 or or something like that and uh instead uh he was he was killed he was killed and i think the, the thing that he was really exposing was uh, was uh barksdale air force base like a mili a, a direct military connection to the 19 hijackers and their handlers and uh and who knows what else? Who knows what other kinds of middlemen and men in black or, you know, three, you know, three letter just agencies. To pick up on that then with Dr. David Graham. Um, it's really real. Adam and I recently recorded on the goings on at Alex Station and how Cleodamadon and Nahal Ramsey were monitored coming into the United States, coming out of the Kuala Lumpur, Kuala Lumpur summit. Yeah. And, um, the CIA blocking that information from going to the FBI then. Right. And uh, we played Richard Clark's clip where he talks about that. Um, so that, coming across your work on Dr. David Graham, then there's this source who's going right to the FBI and telling them he's met this, uh, these two, well, he didn't know they were hijackers at the time, but uh, it was an intermediary, wasn't it? I'll just have, I'll have to remind yeah. myself of his... Uh, Muhammad Jamal Khan. Khan. Yeah, he was a uh, Saudi-born gentleman living in Pakistan who had a, a rap sheet for all kinds of petty crime, and uh, uh, but also was doing interesting things in Shreveport. If you look at his criminal background, he also like seemed to be doing things to bring attention to himself. Like he jumped off a bridge at one point, and uh, uh, he seemed to be maybe setting up dates or sexual liaisons for different officers and women uh, at Barksdale Air Force Base. He was a real sleazy dude. <laughs> and uh, he also was kind of like the, the, this, these, these terrorists' handlers. And Dr. David Graham was kind of an amateur detective who set up a hidden camera. There's, there's videotapes. I don't know if you ever saw the documentary Court of Corruption by... Um, yes. Yeah, okay, good. So the, you can see some of the footage that I brought back from Shreveport of... Uh, Graham using his wiles and getting Muhammad Jamal Khan to come out of jail and speak to Graham in his doctor's office, not knowing there was a hidden camera. And so Jamal Khan confirmed that, that he had, in fact, introduced Dr. Graham to two of the 9-11 hijackers. Yeah. This is when Khan was in prison after 9-11? Yeah, Khan was in, in jail, not prison, but in jail on some sort of petty offense. I think right. it was... Uh, uh, I forget what it was. It was a petty offense. I think he was uh, hiding cash transfers. Yeah, that's right. It was a wire transfer. He he yeah. transferred uh, over ten over nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars. Yeah. I think right. Yes. Um, and uh, and then he later skipped his bail or skip, he you know he 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 fled the country and he skipped an extradition hearing. Uh, and there's a very interesting reference to nine eleven and the the, the attorneys. Um, notes says something about like we reserve the right to leave the option open to prosecute Khan for crimes related to 9 11. 
That's we right. Not, yeah, we do. Yeah, they made they made direct reference to 9/11 as if they knew something. And uh, my buddy Jordan Green, who I went down to Shreveport with to research this story, and he did his own report for Yes Weekly. He he you know he's a Columbia journalism grad, so he did all he he crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, and he even talked to that attorney and said, "What was the meaning of these these strange notes in your filing?" And she said something like, oh, well, after 9-11, everybody was paranoid about uh, 9-11 and everybody wanted to like leave, option, leave the option open. But that's, that seemed to be disingenuous at best because this guy, Khan, had a direct relationship to two of the 9-11 hijackers that was not examined in his extradition hearing. It didn't come up, you know, that this guy was a babysitter for Syed Banahamad, Nawaf al-Hazmi, and maybe Khalid Almidar. Khalid Almidar was a name that Graham saw on boxes. And Graham personally met Syed Banahamad and Nawaf al-Hazmi. It was interesting that Khan was acting sufficiently suspicious to have Graham go to the FBI about him. He, was, he seems to be in no way trying to keep his head down. He's talking about his connections with the Pakistani embassy and Osama bin Laden and his access to this uh, Barksdale Air Force Base, uh, whether he's trying to draw attention to himself or not. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel like he's on some secret operation uh, yeah. hijackers and he's got to keep it quiet and hidden from the authorities. He, yeah, in some ways I'm reminded of Oswald shooting at the wrong target, or the fake Oswald, yeah, yeah. shooting at the wrong target and saying, I'm Lee Harvey Oswald and I want to kill Kennedy. I, I wish that target was Kennedy, you know, and then, and, and then later people being like, yeah, I saw that guy. He was, he was a nut and he was a, he loved to shoot at Kennedy. So, um, so um, Grand, uh, Khan, Muhammad Jamal Khan jumping off of a bridge at one point, which is this, one of the many little, petty crimes that we found by doing the, the research. And, but I think, I don't know, to answer your question more directly, I think in the context of the big wedding, people that are people or humans are humans. They tend to be kind of, uh, they tend to be braggarts. Um, so I think there's, there's just some natural boasting that I think he was also certainly capable of. When Dr. Graham went to the FBI and he did so before 9-11, it's from what I got from your writing was they didn't dismiss him um, because they're getting so many of these reports in of so many different things and there was nothing. Yeah, that especially in Shreveport, right? There's, there's the Shreveport office of the FBI was not inundated with, you know, 9-11 hot potatoes, smoking well, guns. But, but, um, have I got this right that um, David Graham initially went prior to 9-11 to report these guys because they, that's right. they were that's suspicious, right? right? So. Well, yeah, he, he thought he thought they were young, suspicious Arabs, and he had his, a radio show. He was kind of like a Oklahoma City truther before 9-11. So he was very interested in the uh -huh. truth about Oklahoma City. You see, he was a, a Bush voting Republican who was interested in the truth about the world, you know. Uh -huh. And don't forget, he also took on the local Air Force establishment for framing a young airman for narcotics. Uh, this guy had been killed under suspicious circumstances and uh, it was called the Mons case. So Graham was the kind of guy that just did not give a rat's ass about anything but the truth. And he was willing to take on the entire establishment in Shreveport and he did that from his perch on this little AM radio show. So, uh, and he knew what, you know, he knew uh, a rotten story 
when he heard one, like the Oklahoma City bombing. I don't know if we have time for that, but it's very similar. Some of the same names come up. Controlled Demolition Incorporated doing the cleanup at Oklahoma City. It was the same company, or one of the, was one of the companies involved in doing the cleanup at Ground Zero. And the fact that the Murrah building could not have been taken out by a fertilizer bomb and a rider truck. You know, especially the column that was way in the back of the left center of the building. That column could not have been damaged the way it was by just a, just a fertilizer bomb. So Graham was, was keen on uh, young Arabs who were talking about uh, wanting a box truck. So that's, that's, you're right. So it was before 9-11 he originally contacted the FBI, and that was some of the context that I believe he had. And you, you contacted the FBI yourself, or you were meeting with uh, the FBI about this, where you put it to them that Mohammed Jamal Khan was, you asked him if he was an informant. Right. Yeah, it was towards the end of my brief dialogue with Special Agent Steve Hayes of the Shreveport FBI, which was an impromptu uh, interview. I did it with uh, my buddy Jordan Green, who was the journalist I was traveling with. And uh, it was a gift from the spirit of truth in a lot of ways because we just walked in there and he happened to be the one that was sent to the front desk to shoo us away. And uh, he didn't know who we were, but uh, uh, his reaction, I, I went in thinking that he would have a, um, you know, how most people are, you know, they're able to be stoic, but he was not. He was, he was, he almost seemed to be kind of like come, falling apart at the seams. And, um, and it's, I guess it's the difference between the TV FBI and real life people. You know, he's a real human being. And I think that he didn't um, join the FBI to be, to participate in the murder of, you know, small town radio journalist, dentist, patriot, bronze star heroes from Vietnam, you know? Dr. Graham was, was, I think, an outstanding member of the Shreveport community. You know, he was active in the local, local church. And he was friends with uh, Deacon John Milkovich, who later became state senator John Milkovich, who's another guy you should really talk to you about this case. Milkovich later gave the, the, uh, the, the what do you call it, the eulogy at the funeral for, for David Graham. And, uh, you know, he indicated that, that the FBI was certainly involved. And so my interview with Steve Hayes uh, was brief, but it was, it, we got everything we needed really from it, you know? Um, I don't know if you're religious or spiritual, but cer certain coincidences happen that just almost seem like they're just too good not to be coming from some sort of higher power sure. right? or yeah. mathematics of the universe, if you will, or just kind of like things clicked. And so the interview was only maybe about five or 10 minutes, but he, he confirmed, um, that he was a human being that was, uh, he kind of sputtered forth and sort of blurted out things, you know, like uh, we asked him why was the FBI telling doctors in the emergency room that, you know, not to try to save this guy or that he was suicidal or, uh, uh, which is something that, ha that, that indeed happened. His, Graham's own son confirmed that that happened. The anesthesiologist, I think, left the emergency room due to the intimidation from the FBI. And, and, Hayes's answer was like nonsensical. He couldn't come up with anything better than, Did, well, do you know that Dr. Graham had to be reminded to shut the lights off in his office at night? Or he had to have his assistant, uh, you know, help him with those kinds of things. That's kind of like, 
you know, uh, A does not lead to B. And uh, I just remember physically, like, you know, the body language was like, yeah, I had this kind of like this, this tremor, you know, this kind of, um, yeah, it was a tremor. It was like somebody was really blocked, really angry with themselves, angry with their, probably their bosses and their bosses' bosses and the entire system, you know. Be really interesting to see what ever became of him. You know, I haven't ever tried to do any follow up, but I probably should. It's probably a good time. I'm sure he'd love to hear from me. Maybe, maybe I'll urge him to do landmark forum or something. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the special agent in charge, Mike Kinder, did leave the Shreveport FBI office shortly after all this. He either left or was transferred. So, um, so yeah, there's probably more I could say about the Steve Hayes interview, but, uh, my coffee house was burglarized the same day that I did that interview. Right. Kind of an interesting coincidence. This might not be a coincidence, but, uh, uh, I definitely felt like I was onto something and, uh, I think other people probably agreed and, um, yeah, I came back from Shreveport and I was like really on fire. I even reached out to this, the, the local police uh, precinct um, in, in Brooklyn. I don't know why. I, did. I, mean, I think I met this guy. I met the new precinct chief and he actually wrote me a letter. I still have the letter, but it said like, um, these are major findings that you found in, in Shreveport. You know, and this guy was, was not your average New York City cop who was like, you know, following the, the gag order but he he um he said that you know you you found something there and that was that felt really good i needed that from some sort of father figure <laughs> sure. could i follow up on that uh, if i may um are you familiar with mike sledge mike sledge no who is that he's a, a close friend to dr david graham and he's the one who's oh yeah, actually, yeah 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 yeah, yeah he's that, hold, he's actually holding the the, the manuscript called the graham report Right, right. I have a copy of it still too. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Sledge. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I think he was one of the people that we met with. Okay. Um, yeah, that's right. We did is, we did meet with him. Yeah. Is is there any reason why that wasn't published at all or well it is published on sanderhicks.com as a free download. Right, yeah. But um it's one of these books, it's kinda of like Rodney Stitch's book. It's like great for researchers, but it's not really a work of literature. It's not gonna sell more than uh, you know, 500 copies and the economies of scale and publishing, uh, especially before print on demand. But, uh, you know, I used to be in publishing in the nineties and, you know, you'd think about, do you, do we really want to invest in printing a minimum of a thousand copies of this book and will it sell and will it break even or hmm. so? Yeah, it's worth it. I just, unfortunately guys, I hate to break it to you, but not, that many people um, care. I wish they. I wish more people cared. I wish more people cared about the time that the FBI killed a U.S. citizen who was a hero and a fearless uh, spiritual warrior truth teller. But uh, I don't know. We're living in a very cynical time, and people are overworked. People don't have the time to do their own research and follow their passions. You know, we like like uh, like. Like like uh, Thoreau said, I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that I never lived, right? And uh, unfortunately, people live lives of quiet desperation, and they um, 
they don't ever really follow their passions and they they go they run around with anger and resentment and uh telling a story in their heads and uh and that's what leads to things like the fbi killing a whistleblower and the local media for the most part didn't expose it however there was a really kick-ass youngish uh tv journalist named jeff farrell who did cover it and he always helped me get on television whenever i was down in shreveport so that was really great i i, I love him for that um so anyway that's well would, would, would you wouldn't this be a problem though because it's a very um non uh, the script story itself. I mean, not many people outside of a few that I know of, and I only came across David Grant because of you. Um, and yeah, I, there's not many people that know about the story. So I, I, I can't really blame the public for not knowing because, as you said, the media really didn't uh, give this any attention whatsoever. Well, well, yeah, but you know what? The, um, the way the media works is a really good local story will get picked up for the national wire services or national news services, you know, and this story has been on KSLA TV numerous times, but it's just, it's, it pushes all the wrong buttons because it points to U S military overseeing a couple of the key 19 hijackers, mm -hmm. you know, and I know we're not living in very spiritual religious times, but I think one of the gods you cannot question in our day and age is the 9-11 official story, because then you're really going after a lot of big money power. And, you know, it's almost like even more powerful than money is like belief and psychology and, and tropes and, and just kind of like the reality, the, the building blocks of reality, you know, and, and I'm trying to wrestle with why more people in the DSA don't respond to hey, you know, what happened in the Straits of Hormuz is a false flag attack. Let's talk about this. You know, I tried to have a Zoom conference with activists last night, and it didn't, it didn't really get off the ground. But uh, um, I did talk to a couple of people, though, so that was good. But, okay. uh, yeah. Can I ask you, because I'd, like, I'd like to go on and talk about Mohammed Atta, in, and particularly his, his time in Florida. Um, so... Start, and that brings up lots of questions about who these people are, because we, we've been trying to dig into who Mohammed Atta is yeah. from Hamburg Sale yeah. onwards. But with this character, Mohammed Jamal Khan, before we do, he, he reads like a kind of a crook, right? He doesn't come across as someone who is expressing deep concern for the Palestinian cause or any sort of Islamic fanaticism the way Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, right, the, the 1993 bomber. Um, right. So... I, I may be asking you to speculate and say, just say if you don't wish to go there, but do you get a sense of what his relationship to Nawafar al-Hamzi and Khalid al-Madidhar was then, or what is in their mindset if they've got connections to the Saudi GID that causes them to hijack a plane um, to the point of their own, their own desk? Because it, it's easy to see that if it's explicable through either a religious fanaticism or some sort of devotion to a cause like the liberation of the people of Palestine or we're doing it because of the sanctions in Iraq or something. But if it's a more sinister ploy, if it's more of a criminal element, what do, do you have any insight into that? I appreciate that's an impossible question in many regards. I'm just... Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you personally, my experience of Islam is one of a, um, it's a high level, high level of dedication. And, um, and the way you conceive of God is God as the, the, the fountain of all mercy, all compassion, the most merciful, the most compassionate. And um, so I, I think the, my experience of Islam is, uh, uh, it's highly, con it, it, it contradicts um, having anything to do with US military or Saudi intelligence or Al Qaeda, uh, whatever that is. And so I, I don't think that these guys were religiously motivated. Um, of course, Wahhabism inside of Saudi Arabia is extremely strict um, and is, is not considered you know, true Islam. I guess I'm, I guess I'm, my biases are more probably, you know, having had experience, some experiences with Shia Islam in Iran. But um, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know enough about them personally to explain their personal motives, but I think the best we can do is that they were, they were dupes, they were cutouts, they were, um, they were compartmentalized, they probably didn't know about the whole operation. Um, we know Muhammad Atta uh, spoke Hebrew, according to his pink-haired stripper girlfriend, Amanda Keller, who's an American. He had a brief fling with her, but that was an interesting uh, relationship for the insights it gave us into yeah. Muhammad Atta and Wolfgang Boringer, who I hope we get to talk about. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Can, we, can I ask you about that now, then? A, a man... Um, Twist my arm. I was about, to call, arm. A, <laughs> I was about to call him Amanda Attar. I was going to conflate the two, right? So yeah. we, we've actually, the last recording Adam and I did was on the Hamburg cell, and we were looking particularly at Muhammad Attar and Ziyar Jara. So let's focus on Muhammad Attar. He, he comes to Hamburg through a connection of a couple of German teachers, and then he seems to spend an incredibly long amount of time doing this educational course. Um, it's not clear, but it's it seemed, people seem to suspect that the CIA are monitoring the, the Hamburg cell. Um, at some point, his um, associate, Ramsey bin Al-Shabib, goes off to this summit in Kuala Lumpur. So presumably after that, the CIA are monitoring the, the Hamburg cell when he comes back. Um, and then... There's no problem. Ramsey bin Al-Shabib does not get into the United States, but not because he's on a terrorist watch list, much like Khalid Ahmadinejad and Rahman Hamzi. Muhammad Atta does. And then we have these completely conflicting reports of him, where he's, he's certainly acting the fundamentalist to some degree when he's in Germany. Um, but we have this completely conflicting report with Amanda Keller and his, his uh, stripper girlfriend. And this has been a very uh, difficult thing, I think, to get to the bottom of for me, I wrote a list of reasons for and against uh, Amanda Keller even having met Mohammed Attar because people dispute mm. that. She made yeah. a statement, she retracted it, she made it again. Um, she might have been describing somebody else called Mohammed. Um, she seemed so there's, there's factors that seem to go against it, and then there's factors for it. Like, there's clearly the FBI were trying to intimidate her, and there's multiple witnesses to that fact. I think it's her mother, her landlord, and Mohammed Atta's landlord all say that she met Mohammed Atta. So, I got a list of for and against 
And I don't know if you want to add anything there, Adam, but that, that's as far as I got with it. And I end up throwing my hands up and saying, oh, gee, I don't know, because she places Mohammed Attar as being um, a psychopathic guy who tortured kittens and liked to snort a lot of cocaine and may, may have been involved in the importation of cocaine, which takes him to a, like, well, that, that would really explain a lot if he was some sort of intelligence asset working for the CIA or whatever. And then there's this yeah. Wolfgang Barringer connection that you've talked about, which I, I, I would just hand over you talk i don't have my head around that at all so good good, good. Adam, well, i know you, you like to read so have you, have you have you read daniel hopsicker's work yes um yeah adam has i, I haven't read it okay great great well there's a fun fun book uh, by this guy daniel hopsicker called welcome to Terrorland: Mohammed atta and the 9-11 flying circus in florida and i guess it kind of came and went it's uh it's great that you saw it adam or read it and uh it's Probably only about two hundred dollars. I that's why I haven't read it. <laughs> no shoot! Wow, yeah, that's really funny. hard to get. Oh, that's funny. Wow. Yeah, it costs a lot of money. It's ridiculous. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Wow. yeah. Um, that's too bad. I'm gonna have to make sure I have my old copy somewhere. I think, I think <laughs> I do, but um, I think I have a signed copy from Daniel because Daniel was kind of a friend and he was somebody I knew before 9/11 because uh, I was the publisher of a Bush book called Fortunate Son and Hopsicker came, came out of the woodwork and wanted me to work with him on some something. He wanted me to work on him on this Barry Seal book and I, I, I didn't really get it, so I, I didn't. But then he published his own Barry Seal book, Barry and the Boys, yeah. right around the time of 9-11 and then was primed to self-publish his work on Muhammad Atta because he is... I, I really respect him because he does his own research and he gets in a car. And in his case, he moved to Florida and he lived there for like 10 years and did a lot of research. So, um, yeah, and I know that the FBI's timeline is wrong uh, in terms of when Otto came to Florida. I remember that from Hopsiger saying it was one of the primary things that he was concerned with. Uh, and I also think like, you got to remember like they, they can, uh, they need to have a, if they need to have two Muhammad Atta's, they could easily find somebody that looks a lot like them and acts like them or acts even more like the original, you know, like, like Oswald. We need an Oswald that looks like Lee Harvey Oswald, but is even more pissed off, is less leftist and more anti-Kennedy and, uh, you know, and, 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 and he'll do this and that. And people will really remember because he'll say, I'm Muhammad Atta or I'm Lee Harvey Oswald. Right? So, um, the movie Executive Decision uh, depicts that really well, the 1972 film with Burt Lancaster, the JF JFK film, yeah. So, um, and I think, uh, Richard, your questions are answered when you just look at the, the, the issue of Wolfgang Boringer, because this was clearly uh, the, the deep state stepping in and trumping the actions of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. When they arrested Mohammed Atta's CIA-linked drinking buddy, cocaine buddy, Key West party boy, Wolfgang Boringer, who hated the Jews and uh, had like 100,000 in cash on his yacht. And like, I think he slept with a loaded Glock. Uh, and this guy had all kinds of connections. Anyway, some sort of international deep state figure like him, uh, when Joint Terrorism Task Force arrests him, he says, you can't arrest me, I'm working for the CIA, according to my sources. And then my sources say, oh, and this is all off the record and please don't ever publish this. And if you do, our relationship is over. And then, you know, me being the punk rock publisher, dude, I just like can't 
get enough of that. And of course, I'm not going to not do the story. So I did the story. And at the same time, Daniel Hopsaker did the story. So we both had the same, pretty much the same story from some very similar sources. Uh, I was lucky again to have one of the sources actually visiting my coffee house at the time. We were doing a book party for Joe Trento. And there was an NYPD intelligence guy, Wally Zines, who was telling the source, Lois Ann Batuello, stuff. And because and, and, Lois was the one that had, that had faxed copies, pages of Welcome to Terrorland, Hopsicker's book, to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. She's this weird, connected woman. Um, she's not weird, but she has weird connections. She's actually a very nice lady, but she also suddenly decided to kind of try to put the kibosh on both me and Hopsicker and said, don't, this is, this is, she basically said it, she did an about face and said, you're not seeing what you're seeing, you know, and, and you can't, you can't report or write on what you're seeing here. And we both were like, fuck, fuck you. You know, yeah. you know this is huge. This is, you know, if somebody says you can't arrest me, I'm working for the CIA. That's, that's pretty hot. And, uh, and then he's, uh, he's, he's released Richard. That's not, it's not that he said that, but he later was released. And uh, so that I think is a smoking gun. And that also, it's kind of similar to the David Graham story didn't get half the attention it deserved. So just, just to walk me through the narrative, it's Amanda Keller that places Attar with Wolfgang Borringer. She's the one that talks about this. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that he and uh, he partied, Borringer partied with Atta numerous times in Key West. And yeah, and that's how Hopsicker found out about him. And so basically Hopsicker hearing it from Amanda, put it in his book. Lois worked with Hopsicker and was trying to kind of coach him a little bit. Um, and she taught him a few things about pulling documents and legal documents and uh, court records and stuff. And so Lois uh, seems to have a foot in each camp and uh, is close to the National Association of Securities Dealers, NASDAQ, yeah, I was part of a blue ribbon panel for the SEC at one point. Um, she's located in the Napa Valley, California, from what I hear. But ever since this story, she's, she hasn't talked to me. We, we've been out of touch. There's a great picture of me sitting with her and Joe Trento and Susan Trento yeah, yeah. at my old coffee house. But, uh, so I, I can tell you that this happened. But, uh, and I can show you a photograph kind of like the cover of Barry, Barry and the Boys with Daniel Hopsiger, where you can see all these CIA people drinking with Barry Seal. Adam, do you have any uh, follow-up to that or anything? Yeah, else actually, I, yeah actually I do. Um, in chapter three of the, the book, The Big Wedding, um, Hopsiger, in his investigation into Huffman Aviation, where uh, some of the 9-11 uh, hijackers like Atta and Marwan al chose to be pilots when he took flight training, it has past ties to the CIA. Uh, the company was owned by Rudy Deckers and had an affiliate with Wally Hilliard, who gave him $100,000 to start the business. Can you explain how these two and the history of aviation ties into the CIA? Yeah. So there's, um, there was a guy I made reference to earlier when I confused part of his history with Richard House's history. But um, um, 
His name is Captain Brad Ayers, and he knows a lot about Florida. He's a former DEA agent and was tasked to work for um, uh, a kind of a CIA training ground that was going to train people to take Cuba over. And it was a, a CIA, a rare CIA domestic training ground called JM Wave. So Brad Ayers told me a lot about the background of CIA in Florida and uh, especially on the western coast of Florida. Um, so Huffman Aviation was located at a former military uh, airstrip uh, in western Florida and south southwestern Florida. Uh, and it was actually Lois Ann Batuello, who I just mentioned earlier, who taught Daniel or coached Daniel to find all these corporate records that was able to link Wally Hilliard and Rudy Deckers and uh, Arnie Krutoff was the other Dutch guy and so Hopsticker thought it was odd that both um, two of the uh, flight training centers that these 19 hijackers supposedly trained at were owned by Dutch nationals and uh, yeah I talked to Rudy Deckers too on the phone at one point and uh, tried to interview him it was okay it was it wasn't that great an interview but uh, for what it's worth. Would, was it, would, would you consider Rudy Decker to be uh, a nefarious figure regarding uh, all this? Um, I think Wally Hilliard is probably more interesting. Because, more interesting. Yeah, there's other business associates um, that he had that I think are interesting. And, and uh, there's banking and CIA possible connections. Um, it gets pretty Byzantine. And so it's not a smoking gun from what I remember, but uh, um, it, it's, it's worth looking into, you know? Somebody like Rudy Deckers, I think is kind of almost like a cutout or a, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a fall guy or you know, a backstop, you know, somebody who's compartmentalized, he only knows a little bit and uh, um, yeah, so. Rudy Deckers didn't strike me as very intelligent, not the sharpest tool in the shed. I, I would agree with that because I, I I always I always thought the same way as you did. Hilliard, in the book, uh, the, your book, The Big Wedding, it actually gives him a hundred grand out of the blue, and he says that um, you know do what you want with it. And it, actually, Deckers didn't even believe it, so he he actually went and cashed a check and put it to his pilot. But meanwhile, there's a guy Wally Hilliard says I, I make that in a day, and right. this guy has you know he's a millionaire many times over, and. After, I think after 9-11, actually Hilliard states to Deckers that he wants 51% of the proceeds for the company. Deckers disagrees, but Hilliard ends up uh, taking the company. And actually, the company, I think, is liquidated years later. I'm, I'm not too sure if it's open anymore. But um, interesting figure in, enough because Hilliard's a, 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 not a very popular figure, but he's a very shadowy figure at best. Yeah. There's a funny quotation that Hopsicker found about something like, I think Hilliard said, you really got to ride herd on those pilots or else they'll skin you. <laughs> Sounds like a grandfatherly salty thing to say. Yeah. Oh yeah. What is it? his mo personal motto was um, love God, hate communism, back the pack. Back, back the pack. Back the pack. Yeah. Basically um, back Back the group, back the team, back the pack. Oh, okay. Right. 
Richard? Okay, yeah, anything further on Florida? I mean, I'd, I'd like to, there's a couple more things, like sort of areas I'd like to ask um, about um, Randy Glass, for sure. And I think it yeah. ties in to... There's the other side of Florida, yeah. Right. Well, it, I mean, it sort of ties into Mohammed Jamal Khan having this, or announcing he has this connection to the Pakistani embassy, and then Randy Glass uncovering this Pakistani ISI connection. Can you, can you maybe talk about um, who Randy Glass is, how you met him, and his his relevance here? What sure. he uncovered about the State Department's foreknowledge of 9-11? Right, 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 right. This is something, again, people in the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which uh, I hope you guys will also interview those people sometime. They're actually, you know, I think at the point of the spear in terms of legal action with all this stuff and trying to make it uh, not just be research, but action, you know, and just action towards justice. So um, a lawyer from the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry was recently asking me about Randy Glass and his possible connection or likely connection to a State Department official, kind of an undersecretary uh, at the time of 9-11, named Francis X. Taylor, who Randy Glass wouldn't name by name, but inferred that I had it right. Um, Kind of, he dropped all the breadcrumbs to to lead me to this guy, Francis X. Taylor, who, so Randy Glass was a former con man who became an informant for the Joint Terrorism Task Force, Operation Diamondback, which was infiltrating Pakistani and Taliban-linked international arms dealers to try to prevent Pakistan from getting a nuclear weapon and uh, um, and so Glass had his eyes uh, open and his ears open and he heard at one point that there was uh, that the Twin Towers would be taken down. He, he heard it from uh, one of his contacts. He was undercover uh, working for a Joint Terrorism Task Force. And so he kind of went and tried to alert the authorities more. You know, he felt that he was being silenced. And so he wrote a memo, sent it to Senator Bob Graham of Florida. Um, it's one of the memos that's on the inside front cover, inside back cover of The Big Wedding. And, and which uh, he's, he refers to in his letter to, to Senator Bob Graham, he refers to his contacts at State Department. And uh, some of those contacts were likely Francis X. Taylor, who Glass told me, said to Glass that, you know, don't worry about it. We, we, we have it under control. Um, we know all about planes being flown into the World Trade Center. So that was Francis X. Taylor. So if you jump back to the topic half an hour ago about the dancing Israelis admitting that they had foreknowledge and all the other people that seem to, you know, there's, I think there's 19 different international intelligence agencies of other countries that were um, warning the U.S. about 9-11-2001, right? And there's so many different code words like the big wedding is happening uh, on the 11th, right? Uh, right. So there's all kinds of different um, indications that, that there was serious foreknowledge, but I don't think anybody has ever, whoops, I don't think anybody has ever um, implicated somebody as high up in the State Department as, as what Randy Glass did. And he later had his day in court in Congress, and, and he said that, you know, uh, 
you in Congress should be here to, to, to stand for the truth, not to stand over the truth, you know, not to cover up the truth. And uh, that's what his experience was. He's somebody I haven't kept in touch with, but I've recently uh, found out that we think he, he's deceased. But his, there's an ATF agent that I think one of us, one of us three should follow up with. Um, I think his name is uh, Steve Barberini. I think I emailed you some of that lead info. Yeah. People that Glass worked with said he was a good guy and that he had a uh, good character and he just had a, he had a criminal past, so it's easy to dismiss his, yeah. some, some of his testimony. But uh, he also was interviewed by Dateline NBC. And, right. uh, you know, the, 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 the foreknowledge that the towers were going to be uh, taken out was, 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 was um, relevant, to say the least. Right. I think one of the contacts with Randy Glass was a, 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 an arms dealer named H.G. Abbas. I think that was his name. R.G. R.G. Abbas. R.G. Abbas. Okay, thank you. Right. Yeah, and he was posing with uh, Stinger anti-aircraft right. missiles right. on his shoulder. Right, right. I think it was R.G. Abbas who said those towers are coming down. They had right. dinner at uh, Robert De Niro's uh, Tribeca Grill. That's right, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was talking that the State Department um, said back to him that President Musharraf of Pakistan knows about it, and he said, said that it's under control because ultimately it's an ISI, Pakistani intelligence operation, so they, they'll make sure it doesn't happen. Right. Now, whether that was a sort of limited hangout line to give to Randy Glass or whether the State Department genuinely believed the ISI were going to prevent 9-11. Or, or the State Department was planning to expose a $100,000 wire transfer from uh, the head of the ISI to Mohammed Atta right around 9-11 in case things got too hairy. And in case anybody in the corporate media started asking questions, they, they could have thrown Pakistan under the bus. Uh, as a possible, you know, as a possible stopgap measure to, uh, you know, to have a, a contingency plans in place, right? Any professional operation has to have contingency right, plans. Yeah. yeah. So and if somebody thousand pound or hundred thousand dollar wire transfer, I remember hearing about that quite early on. Yeah, uh, that's what I mean. Yeah. It was it was probably a red herring to get people interested in. Uh, looking at Pakistan when really we should, we should we should have been looking at the U.S. Saudi Israeli deep state. Right, right, right. The lieutenant uh, lieutenant general was Mahmoud Ahmed. Yeah, right. He was the head of ISI. General, uh, he general was in Ahmed. the United States on September 11th. He was meeting with Senator Bob Graham at, right. that day. That's in right. fact, Senator Graham's book Intelligence Matters, which is highly recommended, uh, talks about that. Yeah, and um, how, I, I have always wondered, there might be a simple answer to this, uh, but it, it was like the day before, wasn't it? The $100,000 transfer came in. And it, I always wondered what Mohammed Atta was going to do with $100,000 in one day. I know there's 19 hijackers and others involved, so you divide it up, but does he even have time to divide it up? So it implies that uh, the head of the ISI was not aware the operation was going down tomorrow or that Mohammed Atta had plans beyond September 11th, or I, I don't know. I, is, is there a simple answer to that? What if you can can give me? It just seemed a, a strange thing that late on. Yeah, not people, everything is what it seems. You don't know if, you know, it, you don't know if, um, I mean, it's likely that they're all dead. All, all 19 hijackers uh, were killed, either in the, the planes or um, by other means, right? Yeah, I find it exceptionally likely. I mean, we were just discussing this, that um, we, the 
plebs haven't seen the flight manifest, but the 9-11 commission did. And it's unlikely that none of them would have looked up and down and gone, hang on a minute, that Mohammed Atta's not on here, right? It does appear that the, um, the, the flight listings would have contained their names and therefore they were, they were on the planes. Right? So I, I do find it compelling that they were, I can't, can't say for sure they all were, but I, I find it compelling. Um, what if you trust before, the 9-11 commission? <laughs> every commissioner to either not check that or you know, to not actually look for the names or they, they would all keep that under wraps. I don't know. Maybe they would. Or... Well, the, the commission was highly controlled. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, Catherine Austin Fitz saying every single member of this commission has a control file. They had, there's something on them that it's on file uh, that, that the, the deep state has to control them. You know, uh, especially people like Richard Benveniste, yeah. uh, Barry Seal's uh, lawyer, right? Friends of friends of the Clintons, friends of what Hopsicker called the Dixie Mafia, and uh, so um, anyway, what I was going to tell you is that, like, I, I, I um, yeah, I don't know. Um, how Otta spent the hundred thousand dollars, but I think it's interesting that that was exposed and it wasn't followed up on. You know, all of this, the whole topic, the whole topic kind of shows that something's really wrong with the state of journalism in America. Yeah, actually, with Otta, he actually sent back fifteen thousand dollars to the uh, United Arab Emirates the night before. But, oh, he did. Yeah, he did. He actually sent back some money, but. That wasn't, I mean, that, that money wasn't just the only thing. I mean, you, you touched on it earlier about Haifa bin Faisal sending uh, increments of like $9,000, $8,000 to the wives of two Saudi nationals that were affiliated with Khalid al-Midhar and Wafabzi, and they were Omar al-Bayoumi and Osama Basnan. And these people were getting money from the U.S. ambassador to the United States. And Prince Bandar. Yeah, Prince Bandar bin Sultan, sure. Bandar Bush. Yeah, Bandar Bush, long-standing friend to the Bush family and as well as to uh, Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan as well. But I, I, there was funding coming from all over the place. And you, you wonder where, like, I think uh, Bob Graham actually said it in the Joint House Inquiry. He states that, that the disparity between the damage that they've done and to what, how much we had to spend compared to what, how much they needed was somewhere they, they probably speculated somewhere between three hundred dollars to $400,000. For the operation but it cost the united states upwards like 50 60 billion and he said that the cost effect was really damaging bin laden in in his interview with taser lawani of al jazeera states that that was exactly one of the reasons why he wanted uh the attacks that was because it wasn't basically uh, about religious reasons whatsoever we can all agree on this it was basically about drying, bleeding dry economic in the United States and drawing into a war with Afghanistan. And that's exactly what he wanted. But he doesn't say anything about Iraq, because Iraq, I don't think, was, was anything about really 9-11. It was a lie based upon uh, anthrax letters that Mohammed Atta went to Prague and basically got anthrax, but that was false. And that was uh, through, I think, um, Laurie Malroy, who, who spread that, that rumor oh, yeah. and it turned out to be false. Yeah. But uh, in, in term, or something, yeah. Right, right. right. And, and it, what I'm saying is that we don't know the concept of how many people were actually funding this. But you, you could say that a lot of this money that we're coming from was coming from uh, corporations outside the United States, which is Pakistan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. So, and plus also to within inwards the United States as well. 
Have you guys looked at anthrax? Well, since you mentioned, you mentioned anthrax, it's worth noting that that to me is uh, uh, a, a huge untapped. You know, you want to talk about stuff like that people should talk about more. Uh, anthrax. You know, less about the Pentagon, more about anthrax. It, it could, it could that microfine anthrax could have only come from either Dugway Proving Ground or Battelle Memorial Institute. So, you know, two you know, these quasi-governmental agencies and uh yeah so and bruce evans could not have done it bruce evans could not have, you know acting alone so um and something we never hear about now yeah i mean if it had gone the other way that could be a really big terrorist motif and for i remember i, I just left school and was doing a, like a summer job in a bank at the time and we were given uh, rubber gloves to open the mail with just in case Osama bin Laden in league with Saddam Hussein and the devil in tow uh, send an anthrax letter to this tiny little bank on an island in, in Europe, you know. Um, uh -huh. It's just, I mean, it was crazy, you know. It was that, that's the level of paranoia. The anthrax yeah. attacks spread so quickly. Um, and then it was completely forgotten as soon as the narrative about it being connected yeah. with Iraq fell apart. Remember there was a frenzy for duct tape. Everybody wanted duct tape and they couldn't right. buy enough duct tape. Everyone was duct taping windows and and stuff yeah yeah well why do you think that story died on the vine the anthrax letters anyway oh. it's almost like um just remember how that story almost made us all emotional as a country as a world speaking of a small tiny island in europe um it's almost like that was like the thing that really heightened the terror of 9-11 and brought it home to everybody because it was a ter ter terrifically terrible event on television, but the anthrax component meant that you could also personally be killed or poisoned through this, right. you know, um, a very deadly bio warfare chemical. <sighs> Pardon me. So, um, And then it went poof, you know, and then the whole story just disappeared. So it's almost like an emotional climax in which we all we were all really upset. And then it, it, it left and, and, uh, and the story got kind of lumped together with all the many, many mysteries of 9-11 of that people don't really have the time for or they just feel pressure not to look into it. Because those le actually, the, the, actually, the the letters actually went to the two Democratic senators that were against the war. I think Tom Daschle, Tom Daschle, yeah. and um, John uh, Kerry. Was it? Uh, I think it was Leahy. Yeah. Patrick Leahy. Oh, Patrick Leahy. Yeah, Patrick Leahy. Yeah. Um, incidentally, enough. Um, but uh, well, they, they were yeah. were, they the, what, they, were they dragging their heels on the Patriot Act? There was I don't understand the American political structure well enough, but they, they were in some way involved in signing off on. The Patriot Act and dragging their heels on it. Actually, I think it was it was actually regarding to uh, the nine eleven commission that they, they wanted to open up the commission as well. Right. They wanted to investigation, and the letters went to him, and I think it went to Dan Rather as well. Yeah, that's right. Right, and National Enquirer, um, right. and uh, yeah, American Media Group. Yeah. Yep. And then that story just like disappeared off thin air because the war came. And everybody concentrated on the war. But I, I agree with you, Sandra, in regards to like, I, and I never could understand the fascination 
for no plane hitting the Pentagon as if like a hijacked plane can't, if you want to say that the planes were remote controlled, that, that's fine. I don't know anything about aviation or mechanics and with it, but there, there, here's a real link into like State Department malfeasance and complicity uh, in, in, involving these invasions of, of Iraq. And because it was this, the anthrax letters themselves, and this is hardly ever discussed. I agree with you. It's something that should be discussed in further in 9-11 in, uh, in circles. And, and regretfully, it's not because I've never seen it. Yeah. Well, do you know Barry Kissin? Do you know who that is? Barry Kissin has done some great work. I've heard of his name. I, I, I'm, I'm not too sure. Yeah. He's actually based in um, Frederick, Maryland, which is pretty near uh, the Fort Detrick. Right. Uh, anthrax bioterror headquarters of america so uh and he's a friend of mine and a uh an attorney and a saxophone player and a great guy so and he i quoted from his work on anthrax liberally in my book slingshot to the juggernaut ah yeah yeah um and it seemed that because of this now uh, we are now forced into almost a, another a conflict in the Middle East itself. Something that, um, oh, the the one, uh, I'm forgetting his name, the the general that went that went to a democracy now and stated the uh, Wesley Clark. Right, thank you, Wesley Clark. And do you, do you see the war looming in a time future? Would it be this year or next year? Would it save Trump's presidency actually? Yeah, I think it actually will accelerate Trump's decline because it's so clearly, I think he's clearly on the verge of impeachment. Uh, or, ah. You know, and, 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 yeah. Um, I think Pelosi is even thinking about it now uh, from what I last, from last of what I heard. Um, and um, I think people would see through it. You know, I think, I think it would be a desperate measure. Um, Iran is four times the size of Iraq population wise uh and uh actually maybe maybe it's four times i should check this before i say what it is it might be four times the size of iraq geographically and 10 times the size population wise but it's it dwarfs iraq and uh you know we're talking about a, a five thousand year old civilization yeah. you know they've had they've had government by islam for centuries centuries before they had the shah who was installed by U.S. Yeah. Um, imperialism. So they had uh, Time Magazine of the Year, Mossadegh, uh, who was assassinated in the very first CIA coup in 1953. So um, we've, we owe them a, an apology, not a un, unprovoked attack. And I've been there twice for conferences about Palestine and about a new horizon of international dialogue and, uh, uh, you know, I don't agree politically with everybody that was there, but uh, there was a lot of good that was there, too. That's where I heard, actually, um, Kevin Barrett tell me to read this book called From Yahweh to Zion, which gave me some perspective on Jack Ruby, and who was uh, Jacob Rubenstein, and his connections to Israel and the possible Israeli involvement in the JFK killing, which is an interesting topic to look into. Not saying that. I'm just saying it's interesting. <laughs> sure, yeah. No, I find it, it's an angle I wasn't aware of until um, seeing Ryan Dawson's documentary, where mm. he mentions the same thing. So. Oh, good, good. 
Is he an anti-Semite? <laughs> and now, now that you laugh about it, he just recently got labeled an anti-Semite. He had to go on a radio show called the Chuck Achelli Effect and defend his position. And I, I, I know Dawson for quite some time. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, he did, he did a documentary called War by Deception and talked about the dancing Israelis himself. And uh, yeah. Well, there's some Zionists, let's define our terms. There's some Zionists who, if you do anything that's critical of Israel, then you're anti, you're, you are an anti-Semite. Yeah. yeah. So it's how you define the term. That's, that's what I hear when I hear the term anti-Semite. The first neuron that fires in my brain is that this is someone who's trying to defend the state of Israel by leveling the anti-Semite connection. Right. And maybe it's a bigger thing in the UK because the Labour Party uh, of Jeremy Corbyn is right. continuously being labelled as being anti-Semitic, or right. people who are anti-Zionists. Anti-Zionism explained as people who who don't even think the the Jews have a right to a homeland, you know. And and if you don't know anything about the context, it's more. Well, my goodness, I mean, everyone's got a right to some sort of homeland, don't they? That's just you know they, they want the anti-Zionists want to drive the Jews into the into the sea. Um, so that like I maybe I'm a little bit biased against seeing it. Well, what I kind of see in truther groups is. Um, I'm, I'm interested that you both think as a lot of anti-Semitism. I think what I see a lot of is um, people maybe find it easier to have a kind of uh, monopolar worldview, okay, that there's one thing behind everything, and whether it's the Illuminati or the CIA or Zionism, and for a lot of people it is Zionism. So, you know, if you stub your toe, it's Zionists almost. It, and I think that there's a tendency to, you know, you've got your hammer and that's your one tool, so every problem is now a nail or every false flag attack is a Zionist behind it. Uh, and there may be kind of a, a simplicity in the worldview that way. But um, yeah, that, that's, that's my kind of bias, I suppose, on it. That's... Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, I see. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? There's some, there's a thread I was going to pick back up. Um, um, oh yeah. It's a joke. But um, there should be some comedian should, should develop some sort of line of uh, humor in which you can say, like, look at what happened to Representative Ilhan Omar in the U.S. Uh, she, she, it, how dare she suggest that people are sensitive about APAC or how dare she, 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 she should, should suggest people are still sensitive about 9-11. You know, we're not sensitive about APAC and we're not sensitive about 9-11. And how dare she, you know, because like it's, it's, it's just, it's a self-proving thesis, you know, how people get so insane uh, if you suggest that, that uh, APAC is powerful. Oh my God, what are you saying? You know, I'm just saying APAC is powerful, you know. <laughs> you know, how dare you? You know, well, and then like suddenly bad things happen to you, you know, like, uh, or people are saying your political career is over just because you stated the obvious. It's not fair. Yeah. I, I think I agree with your earlier point too. And I, I've noticed it right away that uh, actual proponents who have an actual legitimate beef with Israeli right-wing politics, the Likud party and the Knesset and how that, how that influences our bipartisan Congress, these people automatically thrown into the pot of the, uh, the fringe uh, anti-Jewish people, people like, I, for me, it's Bolin. Like Bolin, I think, muddied, poisoned the waters itself for people who have legitimate critics of Israeli politics itself. 
And I, I, I'm, I'm in that group because I do criticize Israeli politics almost not every day, but like once a week I'll put up a story. But it's not enough for some of these people. They want to blame Israel for everything, like you said before. They'll blame everything under the sun, which are which are discussed with Boland. He, he gives you little bits of nuggets that are actually true within 9-11 itself, but then he poisons all of that by implicating that they're involved with the JFK assassination, the World War II, and what, I mean, every event in human history. I don't want to say that he's doing this on purpose for a, a more nefarious purpose, but um, I, I don't know why he does it because he's not a stupid man. And it makes me wonder about the agendas of certain people and why they do this. And what, what, what would be your opinion on that? Oh, I don't know. I can't really. Um, that's a rabbit hole. I mean, he has yeah. a complex right. history. He lived on a kibbutz. Uh, uh, something bad happened to him. Maybe, maybe he got his heart broken. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, in person, he seems to be. He struck me as cold. He struck me as like somebody who was almost like, yeah, this cold, slow energy of just like you know and it just it, it wasn't lively and uh yeah and he's he you know i um when i was running for congress i thought maybe oh maybe i should learn to be more of a diplomat and patch up bridges because a lot of people i was trying to get a lot of support from the 9-11 truth community which is like herding cats right <laughs> and so a lot of people were like oh you're that guy that that um that attacked christopher bolin and so a lot of people knew me only as this anti-Bolin guy. Uh, yeah. And so I had, so I thought I would reach out and, and patch things up and be, be a, be a, you know, this is sort of like a dance of the devil and I'm not totally proud of this story, but I thought I would be, you know, show that I could moderate my extreme views and I would <laughs> reach out and make peace with this guy. But he didn't want to have anything to do with, with me or didn't want to have anything to do with, uh, I don't know, maybe I, you know, maybe he doesn't like people ask, asking him questions about it. I, yeah, I found this a very disappointing aspect of the truth movement. I mean, I think a lot of it is explainable through ego, that people, you know, you can listen to someone's podcast, you can read their book, and you can think that they're all about getting the truth out and the information, and then you have some personal contact with them and find that they're bringing all their psychological baggage into yeah. it too when we encounter that a lot and the, the ideological splits as well like um you know for, for all the information adam has put out on 9-11 either on on my podcast or on his own show for a lot of people that the only concern is his opinion on the pentagon right or if a plane hit it or not that's the only thing <laughs> anything about alex station or the the deep history of u.s collusion with radicalism no nothing did a plane hit the pentagon that's it and, right you know i find that are you right or wrong are you right even or if you do that's the thing yeah. people are upset and i, I so, do yeah. i do wonder um about second. Oh, wait, I'm... it's it's a known thing that um the Israeli state employs students to sit and counter anti-Israeli narratives online, okay? And you can see that being, uh, from their perspective, at least quite justifiable. People are saying bad things about Israel, so I'm going to correct them. Um, and, you know, earn a few quid for doing it, and that, that's fine. But if, you know, if you really wanted to disrupt criticism of any state, or if you wanted to disrupt something like a truth movement, 
Um, the most effective way to do it would not be to sit at your keyboard going, hey, you're wrong about that. Israel is a really good country or the CIA is a good organization or 9-11 wasn't the inside job. The, the best way to do it would be to interject and go over the top to take on the narrative and say, yeah, that's right. Drive the Jews into the sea or, or yeah, the, the towers were holograms and no one died on 9-11, you know, mm-hmm. to interject like ridiculous narratives is far more destructive. Now, whether there are people who are consciously doing that because they're on a payroll or, or whether that's just human psychology playing out, it has a very destructive effect on. Well, again, no, this is actually historically measurable that there is a thing called bad jacketing. And uh, that's, that's the kind of COINTELPRO tactics mm. that we know have existed in American history that the black Panthers were infiltrated by somebody who's, who is extreme and is like really wants to, you know, engage in violent activities and this person is also sowing seeds of of dissension by saying i think xyz is an agent or i think abc is an agent when really they're the one that that is the agent so that's called bad jacketing or snitch jacketing and that's what what breaks apart activist organizations yeah that's a that's a because i mean I, i don't i have no idea and i think it's um destructive to speculate on individuals more often than it's not and who's doing what but whether they're whether it's being intentionally done or not it, it's a massive thing that, that goes on but you know richard one one of the things you learn in bad jacketing is that the person who's suggesting somebody's an agent is usually the person who is the agent so that's why it's tricky it's tricky because you don't want to be the one you don't want to be the one you know it's kind of like ah. uh, yeah yeah <laughs> I think there's a funny irony in that, Richard. Uh, I think we're both thinking of the one person. Well, I can uh, think of two or three, but yeah. Right. <laughs> it's huge. It's, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I listen, my phone's at 10%, and I tried to plug in the charger, but that means I unplugged the headphones, and then I couldn't hear you, so... So we, um, how much longer do you guys want to go? Well, no, this has been, this has been fantastic. Um, I, I would love to squeeze in if it's even if it's only two minutes, a question on, um, 1993 and Carson Dunbar, if, if 10% will get us there, then. Yeah, you're, probably. You're cool. I probably only have about 2% of my energy left, but, uh. We can do it yeah. at the time. I mean, doing six months. No, it's time. okay. In the, in the name of the late, great Mike Rupert, I will go on for another <laughs> 2%. So Mike Rupert was a former LAPD narcotics detective who then became uh, somebody who confronted the CIA director Alan Deutsch about CIA linked narcotics trafficking as depicted in the work of, of Gary Webb, who's, you know, the, uh, the, the great movie I watched last New Year's, um, the, the fictionalized version of the Gary Webb story. Gary Webb was kind of a friend of mine. I corresponded with him uh, right before I spoke at the very first 9-11 Truth Conference in San Francisco in, I think, 2003. And uh, I was speaking about CIA narcotics trafficking. And anyway, so Mike Rupert uh, is somebody also was interested in this field and wrote his book about all of that peak oil, 9-11 truth yeah. and narcotics trafficking, his book, Crossing the Rubicon. Um, and at one point before he published that book, he tipped me off to an FBI whistleblower. That was a New York story that I should learn more about. And I have, and I visited this guy in jail. His name is Richard Taus. And he has a lot of uh, things to say about the world as we know it. And because of that, I got interested in his take on Iran Contra, his take on FBI corruption, um, 
and uh, yeah. So where do you want to go with this? There's so many different well, directions. What, what caught my this. eye is we um, we did about three videos really around uh, the 1993 bombing, the lead up to it, uh, the bombing itself, and the landmarks plot afterwards. And I could write a whole list of things that you look at and go, yeah. That doesn't really make sense. I don't think we've gotten to the bottom of that bit or that bit, like Mohammed Salama going back to the rental car agency afterwards and, and all this stuff. But what one of them is um, the actions of Carson Dunbar. Hello, everyone. Just a quick audio interjection from myself because I made a couple of mistakes in the next two minutes, okay? So the first one being, I've just mentioned Carson Dunbar, but I didn't tell you who he was. He's the head of the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force when the 1993 bombing happened. And in a moment, you're gonna hear me say he was later given the job as head of New Jersey State Troopers by Christina Hoff Summers. And that's complete nonsense. I meant to say Christine Todd Whitman. Christina Hoff Summers is an economist at the American Enterprise Institute. It's nothing to do with this at all. Christine Todd Whitman went on to work for the EPA and was the lady who said the air was safe to breathe after the towers came down, after 9-11. Um, when it clearly wasn't. So I'll link to both of us and see so you can see the difference. But it was very late where I was. Uh, I'm several hours in front of both Sandra and Adam. Um, so it was early in the morning by the time we got to this point. So, okay, apologies for that. Back to the recording. Okay, because he, you have Emad Salem coming in, the, uh, the Egyptian mole in the, the Brooklyn terrorist cell, and saying, uh, these guys, they're building a bomb. It's going to go off. They're going to take out something in New York. And uh, Carson Dunbar, to quote a not very long story, very short, uh, just pulls him out and, and also prevents um, his agents, uh, Antisaf and um, Napoli, uh, monitoring Mohammed Salome and uh, Mohammed the Red. Um, so effectively, Carson Dunbar is a key point part of the plot. From, from, my, from where I'm looking at it, um, the Peter Lance, author of A Thousand Views of Revenge, met Carson Dunbar, said he was quite blase about it didn't seem to think he'd he's never seemed to think he's done much wrong didn't do his career any harm he was on the tw800 investigation and um uh, was christine hoff summers put him in charge of the new jersey police then who christine hoff summers is 9-11 famous as well um so because yeah, new jersey well, state troopers yeah because That's the um, important distinction in our country sorry and <laughs> um, because the cell is um the brooklyn cell and um, the blind sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman was brought into the country by the CIA and seems to be protected by them there. It would be reasonable to assume that they didn't just bring him in, they continued to protect him for whatever reason. Um, then I'm left to wonder, is this incompetence on Carson Dunbar's part or does he have a deeper connection? And I didn't see how to approach that until I read in your book that, yeah, he was involved in some way in uh, the cover-up of Iran-Contra. So that, that was really my specific interest. Right, right. Yeah, so Richard Taus also exposed Oliver North early on and then wouldn't go the other way. And I think people like Carson Dunbar were trying to push Taus to go along, to get along, to look the other way, and Taus wouldn't do it. Very similar to David Graham, who got this, you know, lots of uh, language or lots of signs, sometimes a bullet through the window as uh, a great um, metaphor for what might happen, you know. And, and people like that are just heroic because they don't go the other way. They don't cave to the pressure. And they stand up and they have integrity. So uh, Carson Dunbar has no integrity and well, you know, presided over the railroading uh, 33 to 90 years for pedophilia charges that uh, on the flimsiest of evidence for his underling 
Richard Taus, who was a special agent of the FBI who wouldn't go the other way on Iran Contra. So, um, uh, so there you have it. Um, I urge you to go visit R Richard Taus in Clinton Correctional, Dannemora Prison, D Dannemora, New York. Okay, everyone, with thanks to Sander, that's everything for this time. Any questions or comments on today's content, we will happily receive, and perhaps we can delve more deeply into any aspect of it in the future. Thank you.